0: Hey, This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome to all of you. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. Against the Stream um, has existed here in Los Angeles for almost 18 years. I've been teaching this Monday night class on the west side for about 18 years. And um, it's one of my intentions as a Dharma teacher, Buddhist meditation teacher, to help you meet each other. It's one of the core principles of Buddhism to develop community, to have other, not just to practice meditation and to Uh, learn about Buddhism, but to um, have friendships, relationships, connections with other people that are also interested, also trying to wake up, trying to end suffering. So I like to start class with asking you, before we get into the meditation and the Dharma talk and all of that, to talk to each other. And so sometimes I try to uh, uh, come up with some kind of uh, topic, some icebreaker for you to speak to each other. Um, about something that's associated with what what I'm going to talk about, teach tonight. So for a moment, reflect, just maybe for a moment, close your eyes. I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to get all meditative, just, (laughs) just to reflect, bringing your attention to your own heart and mind. And the question is, Uh, What do you think is the worst thing in the world? (laughs) What's the worst? When you think about this world that we live in, with all of the different forms of suffering and ignorance and confusion, and when you think of the negative things, the lack of wisdom, all of the confusion that happens on this planet, What's the worst for you? Maybe you have a top 10, top 20. But if you had to choose one thing based on your mood tonight, what's the worst thing in the world? And then the second part is, what do you think uh, is the wise relationship to that? In the, the fact that that exists, whether it's, you know, the destruction of the environment or its racism or its sexism or homophobia or capitalist, unbridled capitalist greed or its, you know, political bipartisanship, whatever it is for you, like, oh, that's the fucking worst. And what do you think is the wise relationship to it? And I'm not asking What's the solution? How do we solve the climate crisis? Just what's the wise relationship from your own heart and mind to the climate or to racism or to sexism or homophobia or whatever, you know, the uh, animal agriculture, the torture of animals. What's the wise relationship to... What you feel is, you know, worst. One of of the worst things that you can think of. How do we relate to it in a wise way? So you can allow your eyes to be open. And does this question make sense? What's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a long list of terrible shit that's happening on this planet. But come up with one, just a simple one, because you're going to introduce yourself to somebody. And you're going to say, and I think that, the destruction of the environments, the worst. And I think that the wise relate way to relate to that is, and you get to come up with, what's the wise response to the climate crisis that we're in? What's the wise response to the reality of what, living on a racist planet? What's the wise response to um, all of the different forms of Uh, whatever you identify as like, this is a problem. And I'm not asking for the solution. Like, well, if you know, equality, that's the solution or recycling. If we would just all fucking stop driving cars, that's not what I'm asking for your own internal response to, so that you don't make it worse so that you don't suffer. What's a wise response to the terrible shit that's happening. Maybe in your life, maybe on this planet as what i'm going to talk about tonight and it's a lot of what buddhism offers us is here's the buddhist perspective on how to respond wisely to reality both the joys and the sorrows both the good shit and the terrible reality that that we live in at times <laughs> makes sense as a question be really concise you know this is like two or three sentences i think Here's in modeling. I think the climate is the worst you know issue that we face right now. And uh, I think that you know the solution is some level of activism and acceptance. You know, and that's it. And then next, what, what, what is it for you? What is it for you? So that you talk to each other and we only take about five minutes for this. So don't go on and on about all of your solutions and your hopeless nihilistic perspective and (laughs) what a terrible question this is and how suicidal you feel all of a sudden Um, because there's no fucking hope (laughs) at all. (laughs) So at home, I'll put you in breakout groups here in the room. Just try to find a couple people you don't know yet. Part of this is meeting people with deep, weird questions. So meet some people that you don't already know. And at home, breakout rooms are coming.
1: Um,
0: how about a, a, a not everybody, of course, but a handful of uh, what was what was it that came to mind for you as the worst thing? Being alone. Being alone. Being alone. alone that know. sort of isolation, loneliness. Yeah,
1: and um, being alone. Yeah, not having community.
0: Lack of lack of connection. Lack of connection. Yeah. yeah. What else? Ignorance towards others. Indifference. Ignorance. Someone else said. Well,
1: um, oppression of animals or humans or
0: anybody—kind of the blanket oppression, all of the different forms that that takes: animals, humans, maybe environmental could be seen in that too. What else? Please. Greed. Greed.
2: You hear that, Bradley?
0: Yeah. Greed. Sierra, go ahead. I had climate change, but I, um, you had said it, so I said animal abuse. That's what's getting to me right now. I meant animals. Yeah, Tibby, go ahead. Uh, man's inhumanity. inhumanity.
1: Say it again. Inhumanity, man's in- inhumanity.
0: I thought you just wanted to go ahead and land with humans in general are the <laughs> worst thing that has happened so far. <laughs> but it's inhumanity, it's the lack of inhumanity uh patricia washko also known as my mom what do you got you have to unmute that's exactly what tibby said man's inhumanity to man i wrote that down immediately so lack of human kindness inhumanity is that what you guys mean by inhumanity lack of lack of morality lack of kindness lack of yeah that's what i let the oppression and yeah. Russ, go ahead.
2: Uh, obviously, capitalism and the lack of communism. Obviously.
1: <laughs>
0: Duh. Capitalism <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> I thought you were a
1: socialist.
2: Let's go with communism.
0: Okay, we'll go full <laughs> communism, okay. Communism, the lack of communism. That works so well in the places that have tried it.
2: Uh, they've never tried it. Haha. <laughs> let's <laughs> debate <laughs> noam chomsky would differ about pol pot <laughs> jesus, is the, jesus is the only one who tried and buddha have the only have the only are the only ones who tried it
0: all right somebody mute him all right <laughs> uh yeah that was a lot of uh cecilia last one online and then i need to see if anybody else in the room
1: yeah Lack of information, spread of information, and all and all these problems that are going on in this country and the world. And if we can't get um, and, uh, anything done, who's going to do it for uh, for us? And the and the complacency of certain people. And it's just it's a lot of craziness. But I
0: know we could do better. Lack of information and complacency. Can you hear the computer okay? And all the way in the back, okay, good. Um, I said last one, but we'll have let Jeff, who's my you know co host on the Zoom, have the last word online.
1: Yeah,
2: well, I, I, I gotta share that I was one-upped by Emily because I said that uh, child abuse, like sex abuse and sex slave from children, would probably be the, the worst. And then she said genocide, so I, I'm beat again. I was. One downed, maybe no. On
0: yeah, well, so, you know, it's all. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a stupid question. What's the worst? What's mm-hmm. the worst form of terrible things? And there's so many lists of terrible things that, um, you know, you can't really say like, well, that's worse than that. Like all kind of forms of oppression, abuse, harm—they're uh, all terrible. Couple in the room before we, yeah, please in the back.
2: Kardashian.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Reality TV. I was just a uh, worship of uh, uh,
1: consumerism.
0: Yeah. Out of yeah. Okay. Please. Apathy. Uh, apathy. The lack of lack of empathy. Apathy on the planet.
1: Please.
0: Uh, uh, sickness and illness. Kind of the, 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 the <laughs> sickness, illness, impermanent. Kind of yes, yes. The diseases some of which maybe are not necessary, but are, yeah. Illness, anything else in the room? Anything that wasn't said? School shootings. School, you know, those kind of like senseless violent school shootings. And... Okay, we're gonna leave it there. Sorry, Cheryl, we're done with this for now. When we will come back to it. So uplifting, right? Start with. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, Buddhism takes an interest, I think I'm going to talk a little bit, but then we're going to meditate. Um, Buddhism starts with the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering. It starts with the bad news, right? Like, so it's not the best way to like open a conversation of like, what's the worst? How are you suffering the most? How is this world the most fucked up? Um, but it is kind of where Buddhism starts. You know, Buddhism Buddhism is a path to enlightenment, but he starts the teaching, the Buddha starts the teaching by saying, first, we have to acknowledge all of the suffering. We can't ignore, deny, minimalize, or uh, anyway, bypass the truth of suffering. Suffering is the reality on this planet. And it's not all that's happening here. We could have the same conversation. I could have asked you, like, what's the best thing in the world? And what's the wisest way to relate to the the highest pleasures that you experience or the most joy that you get out of your existence or, right, that's part of the picture too. There's all kinds of beauty and joy and love and connection and good shit happening on this planet. That's not what we're talking about tonight. Tonight we're talking about the bad shit, <laughs> but I do always want to say, like that's not, especially if somebody's new of like, God, fucking Buddhism's a bummer <laughs> went to this Buddhist class once, and all they were talking about was like how fucked up everything was. And I kind of enjoy existence some of the time. <laughs> There's a place for enjoying existence and for uh, appreciating and celebrating and connecting with. Uh, there's so much right on this planet too. We, we all have neuroscience calls what our mind does, the survival instinct of our mind, a negativity bias, that the human brain just has a bias towards what's wrong rather than what's right. And for whatever reason, it's where Buddhism starts. What's wrong? We're suffering greed, hatred, delusion in all every, every single Thing that we mentioned tonight—some manifestation of greed, or fueled by greed; some manifestation of hatred, of resentment, of uh, anger, of—or or some manifestation of that, or ignorance; some manifestation of confusion, ignorance—is all you know. The, you know, in a simple way, in Buddhism, we say that we can just put it all into these three categories. Can you think of anything that's wrong with this world that's not fueled by either greed or hatred? or ignorance? Maybe you could. I don't know. But that's, anyways, Buddhism puts it into these three categories. And then Buddhism says, our teachings are, that even though it's like this, even though this planet is being destroyed, um, even though People are being shot in schools, and racism is alive and you know prevalent, and um, there's inequality and oppression and greed and hatred and all of its manifestations. And and then you know it's like this isn't just the issue in the world. This is in each inside each one of us, and it's really where the Buddhist conversation asks us to look at our greed, craving clinging our hatred you know where our own uh mind becomes biased our own mind becomes you know a uh, uh, self so selfish that we're willing to oppress or participate in the uh you know oppression of others or animals or or people or or the environment itself i saw a funny thing today from bill maher where he was like my name's bill maher and I, you know, Uh, care about the client, I care about the, you know, he's sort of an activist, but he's like, but I fly private. Yeah. He's like, I, I, you know, I'll admit that like, even though like I want a solution to the climate crisis, I'm off in my jet every time I got a show. Um, And all of us having that humility to be like, yeah, I can point out what's wrong with the world. uh, But it's also in here, like I am part of the problem. I'm not a perfect, uh, you know, totally non-racist, you know, totally equal, you know, uh, wise, compassionate, selfless being. And that's where we can start. What's where, where the internal uh, forms of ignorance that our mind is producing? All of Buddhism, not maybe not all, but the way that I see it is uh, it's from the inside out. What's the, and that was the second part of the question. What's the wise response? First, we can acknowledge oh, there's all of this confusion on the planet. How do I respond to it wisely so that I don't suffer and that I don't create more suffering? Some, you know, some of it's just in, uh, I'm not going to be able to, I personally can't solve climate change. How can I relate to it? I personally can't solve systematic racism and white supremacy in our culture, but how can I show up in a way that responds wisely to it? I can't personally save all of the animals that are being in, that are in cages being tortured, but what's my relationship to that? Where's the compassion? Where's the, um, what's the wise response? And so this is what I wanted to talk about tonight of of what Buddhism offers us as a wise response to living on this planet, and it can seem like, uh, you know, re- you know, it can seem like, well, it's capitalism that's the problem; it's our broken democracy that's the problem; it's, you know, a few people just like, kind of pointed to like, let's just, it's hu- humanity, the lack of humanity. And it's easy to get pretty, my my sense, I know I'm guilty of this, it's easy to get pretty, like, in our American politics, get kind of involved in, like, well, it's, you know, because this is where we're living. Which I think there's something important about, like, this is where we're living, on this uh, land that was stolen from the Native Americans, this country that was founded with slavery and oppression of every single, uh, you know, newly arriving ethnicity, you know, it was the kind of... uh, Slavery from Africa, the murder of the Native Americans, and then it was the Irish are the problem, and then it was the Italians are the problem, and then it was the Polish are the problem, and then then, you know the Jews are the problem, but now it's black and white, or black and or white and and brown and black. And so it's easy to get stuck in that, but I think it's important to also acknowledge that and find a wise response to living in this racist culture but also more globally, more, especially, we're talking about Buddhism 2,600 years ago from India. And the and the Buddha was saying the same shit about his culture. He's like this sexist, racist, classist culture where, you know, and it wasn't a democracy. It was a, um, you know, not theocracy. Um, what are kings, King, Monarch. mon- monarchies you know, in kind of different monarchies and it was, you know, but those had the same sort of class system, those who have and those don't don't have and same kind of racist system, uh, where the lighter skin people had more power and the darker skin people had less and they created a whole culture around racism called the Indian caste system, which is completely racist system and So I do think it's important for us to see it as uh, an issue with humans, not just America. Um, Has anybody seen this movie? It's fairly new, it's called The Triangle of Sadness. I just watched it yesterday. I thought it was a good movie and there was a really interesting commentary on class and gender and socioeconomic status um, you know where there's some billionaires that get shipwrecked and it's like the billionaires they've got all the power until they're shipwrecked <laughs> and they don't know how to fucking fish because <laughs> you know they don't know how to survive on the island I mean there's it's much more than that. I encourage you to see this I think it's really interesting film Um, and then uh, you know it's so easy to think like Anyways, in this, the way it was portrayed in this film, that often men are the problem. You know, it's the patriarchy and men and their power. And what happened in this film is this woman has the power. And then she steals the hot young boyfriend from the model. Because she has the, she's the only one that knows how to fish. (laughs) So she's got the power. And she becomes this totally oppressive force uh, on, you know, and it's this commentary like Lord of the Flies or anything of like, what happens when you put humans together without their regular structures and who takes over and who takes the power. And uh, and this commentary was uh, a woman would do the same fucking thing if she had the chance. Maybe true, not true. I don't think it's about gender. There's a lot of people in that situation who would be kind and generous. It's not what this film was about. <laughs> <laughs> Buddhism offers us meditation tools, ethical guidelines, and um, maybe a cosmology, a kind of a belief system. Although, for the most part, the way that I Want to present and think about Buddhism that it's not really about what you believe. It's not really about the belief system, but there is some. There's a couple of pieces in Buddhism like karma and reincarnation that are like, ooh, do I have to believe that? I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't feel as practical. Doesn't feel like it makes uh, as much applicable sense to my own day to day existence. But it's there in Buddhism. The solution from a Buddhist perspective is to develop compassion for all living beings, to develop a heart, a loving heart. And I say develop, but actually what Buddhism really teaches is that there is a loving heart within each one of us. And that what we're doing through meditation and renunciation and is we're uncovering it. We're accessing a compassion. It's here. It's in all of us, even the most confused people. Now, that having been said, there are some um, people that are so wounded that they'll never access compassion. There's some people that are so um, maybe mentally ill that they don't have any access to compassion. But they in general, humans... Uh, you know, even that term that people were using, uh, have humanity, like, like you know, some people were saying, like, the problem is the inhumanity. But there's something about what Buddhism teaches, which is humanist psychology, that there's goodness, there's love in all of us, just we have to uncover it. Meditation helps us access that loving, compassionate heart. And that um, it's our true nature. If there's anything that we can say is actually our true nature, it's not greed and hatred and delusion, even though it looks like that when you turn on the news. It looks like, you know, human nature is fucking terrible. But that's not the true nature. The true nature is a a compassionate heart but it's really hard to access it. And it takes years of meditation and renunciation to truly access the compassionate heart that's within each one of us. The Tibetans call it our Buddha nature. In the Northern school of Buddhism, they say it's in it's in each one of us. It is our true nature. It's just not uh, accessible without deeply training your mind in meditation. So compassion, you know, the, the reality is, yep, there's all this suffering. Compassion is the solution. Non-attachment is the solution. The greed that we we can point out, capitalism is the problem. It's not the idea of capitalism, it's human craving and clinging. And then unbridled capitalism creates a system where like, oh, yeah, people can really take that human survival instinct of, of greed, of craving, and create, you know tremendous harm to others in the name of their own abundance, in the name of their own, as as is happening on this planet. Greed is in all of us. We all, it's, you know, in the simplest form, it's our survival instinct, craving for pleasure. It's the second noble truth. The cause of human suffering is repetitive craving for life to be more pleasant than it is. And then, in a system uh, like we live in, it's like, well, if I have more money, then I'll be happier. I'll have more access to pleasure. I'll have more access to. And then it becomes, you know, all of a sudden we have the Jeff Bezoses and the, um, you know, Elon Musk's and whoever else, the billionaires who are like, well, I just was trying to fucking cash in and I did it. And at the expense of the planet, at the expense of, you know, all of these other, um, you know, small businesses that were destroyed because of unbridled greed. And, you know, some people look at those, I don't, you know, that's my, I'm not a communist at all. Um, maybe, maybe some of you have different perspectives, but it seems like that to me. <clears throat> Non-attached appreciation is, uh not natural to us. Clinging is natural to us. Compassion is not natural to us. Aversion is natural to us. Our true nature underneath that greed and hatred is the potential of compassion and of non-attachment. I'm kind of bringing this all around what I actually I'm sort of on a tangent, but what I really wanted to talk about um, is equanimity. And how do we live with a peaceful heart? With uh, equanimity, I heard recently, my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, was translating it. He said, maybe a better translation than equanimity is serenity. And I I like that, you know, because I have this conditioning, the serenity prayer from 12-step recovery. And, but he was saying, uh, maybe what, what the Buddha was talking about here is, how do you have serenity, peace, In the midst of all of this greed and hatred and, you know, the school shootings and the millions of children starving to death every day on this planet and, you know, the reality of like how fucking disturbing it is when you look at what's really happening here. How do you have serenity, personal sense of ease and well-being in response to the, the great ignorance that's happening? And this is where I might lose some of you because the Buddha's teaching here is that um, our happiness or unhappiness is not dependent on what's happening in the world. It's not dependent on what anybody else is doing. So this is a a high teaching because it's saying like people can uh, abuse you and they're not causing your unhappiness You're responsible fully for how you respond to their abuse and that it's possible. And this is a really fucking high bar, but it's possible to have so much wisdom, so much compassion, so much equanimity, serenity, that we don't react in a way that makes it worse, that we don't suffer about other people's ignorance. We don't suffer about the ignorance in the world. Of compassion for the ignorance in the world, but we don't meet it with hatred. We have our desire system, but we have enough non-attachment, enough res- uh, uh, enough um, renunciation, you know, relinquishing that we don't make it worse. We don't get attached. We don't get addicted to needing more. Of course, the mind often is going to say, "I wish I'd have more." <laughs> Well, you know what do you what do you want? I want more of <laughs> Anything good, I want more of it. I want all of the shiny black hot rods. I want all.
1: Of
0: <laughs> Equanimity teaches us that uh, humans have the ability to respond in a way that leaves a sense of serenity, of ease, and well-being, no matter what's happening. And there's simple understanding, it's not what's happening, it's how we respond. Now we don't wanna take that to a kind of internal complacency. There's a danger here, I want a warning. There's a danger of using Buddhism, using mindfulness, non-attachment, compassion, karma, um, to be irresponsible using non-attachment to uh, turn a blind eye to oppression, to turn a blind eye to ignorance. So there is a balance that has to be found in um, accepting the world just as it is, taking full responsibility for how we're reacting to the world, while also being fully committed to working for a positive change, to uh, doing something to help Uh, out with the climate crisis, with racism, with sexism, with uh, genocide, with uh, the inhumanity in the world. Both and, acceptance is not complacency. Acceptance is, yep, it's like this, I accept it. I'm not rejecting the reality that we live in. This is the way it is. What's the wise response? Compassion, letting go, you know uh, I like that um, that my teacher said equanimity is serenity because I've always loved the serenity prayer. I don't know how m- mo- uh, how many of you know it it's a I don't know where it comes from maybe it's pre- it's Christian but it's used in um, 12-step programs and it says they use the term God but it just says grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change So that's huge. And then it follows up with the courage to change the things I can. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. And what I believe Buddhism is teaching us, what do we need to accept and where where do we need to have the courage to step up and get engaged and active and, you know, change our relationship internally and externally, where's the courage to change the things that we can change. And then where's the wisdom to know the difference because how often are we busy trying to change some shit we can't change and really suffering about it? You know what you can't change? Anybody else ever. (laughs) How much of your life have you tried to change other people? Right? Like, well, if they would just start acting right, I'd be happy. (laughs) If you wouldn't be such an asshole, I'd be happy. I don't have any ability to change how you are. I only have the uh, ability to change how I respond to you. Whether I can meet your ignorance with compassion, whether I can meet your confusion with forgiveness, whether I can meet this world with um, some level of accepting. I can't change a lot of this. I live in a world of greed and hatred and delusion. It's the way it is accepting the world as it is with having, continuing to have that courage to say, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna change my own mind. I'm gonna develop wisdom. I'm gonna develop wise ways of communicating, right speech, right livelihood, right action. This eightfold path. I'm gonna learn to concentrate. I'm gonna learn to be mindful. I'm gonna learn to uncover that compassionate heart that the Buddha talks about. So that I have compassion for my own pain, I'm going to learn to forgive myself for all of the ways that I've been unskillful, out of integrity, caused myself harm. I'm going to learn to forgive others. The courage to change the things we can, mostly inside. Now, that having been said, I do think that the more you wake up, the more we wake up, the more each one of us becomes kind, non-attached, compassionate serene, the more positive effect that has on everyone everywhere. Maybe that's too big, (laughs) but certainly on everyone that you interact with, certainly uh, uh, whether or not your family of origin changes at all, it's going to have an effect in your lineage if you break free from their toxic cycles of dysfunction or whatever you come from. Whatever got you desperate enough to come here. (laughs) Equanimity, serenity, while still having an engaged, wise response not just I'm gonna be so fucking peaceful that I'm gonna pretend like the world isn't fucked because it is. One of the ways that the Buddha did talk about this was um, an encouragement to his students to seek no external refuge. He said there's no happiness in the no true happiness in the world the world will not provide the happiness that you want it to hide, to provide. That the happiness that we seek is here in our own hearts and our own minds. And that through this awakening process that happens when we meditate and we practice renunciation, then you can navigate the joys and sorrows of existence with a serene, equanimous, open heart and mind. That that is the goal of Buddhism and um let's meditate on that for a bit i know i kind of went on and on on one so we'll do some and i'll throw some of the traditional equanimity phrases in the meditation tonight Mm -hmm. and the core of it is this understanding that uh, we can't control anybody everyone has their own karma and uh, that our happiness or unhappiness is not dependent on what's happening. It's how we respond to what's happening. So find a way to be that's upright, relaxed. Take that posture where your spine is straight, but the rest of your body is relaxed around the upright spine. Allowing your eyes to be closed, releasing any unnecessary tension Bringing an attitude of kindness, compassion. Perhaps saying in your own heart and mind, may I learn to be at ease with this world just the way it is. May I learn to be at ease in the midst of my own suffering, loneliness, fear, cravings, judgments. I learned to be at ease with myself, radical self-acceptance as the intention. Spend a couple of minutes just paying attention to the sensations of the breath, disconnecting from the mind's thoughts and fantasies and plans and memories. Just direct your full awareness to the body breathing Remember to soften when you find your jaw clenching. Softening is an act of letting go, non-attachment. Let go of the tension in your chest, your belly. As you exhale, try to soften your belly. Starting to bring in these reflections on equanimity as we reflect on the world. Opening, even breathing in some of the sorrows that you were thinking about. Trying to meet it with compassion, inhaling the suffering that we're aware of, exhaling compassion towards it. The Buddha's a reminder that all beings have their own karma and that everyone's happiness or unhappiness depends on how we respond to what's happening. It's not the pain that causes suffering, it's the hatred of pain, the resistance. It's not the pleasure that creates greed. It's the craving, it's the clinging, it's the attachment to pleasure. taking full responsibility for our own happiness. May I learn to respond wisely to my own craving and aversion, confusion. May all beings learn to respond wisely to the pain that they experience as well as the joy. As we come to understand that all beings are ultimately responsible for their own happiness and that their happiness depends on their reactions, their responses, not our wishes for them helping us break our codependent tendency of clinging, of trying to control, trying to change others. What we can do is learn to respond with compassion to our own pain, breathing it in, the fear, the anger, the loneliness. Breathing out the intention of compassion as we uncover the compassionate heart, the bodhicitta, the wise heart. What we can do is learn to understand the impermanent nature of all things and let go. Relinquish our clinging, all of the suffering we cause through our attachment, our craving. With each exhale, softening the belly and letting go. Another way that the Buddha talked about developing serenity, equanimity was accepting the vicissitudes of existence, the pleasure and pain, the impermanent nature of pleasure, the presence of pain. the inevitability of praise and blame. Sometimes we'll get the positive attention, sometimes negative. And that criticism and judgment is unavoidable. Don't spend too much energy trying to avoid being criticized. But learning to respond with acceptance, equanimity So the criticism we get. Learn to not take it too personally. Likewise with the praise. Learn to not take it too personally. Don't let the ego get too identified with being praised. And that gain and loss are inevitable. This truth of impermanence, everything that we have will be lost. So that new things will arise. Constantly gaining and losing. To have serenity in the face of the pain in the world. To have serenity with the impermanent nature of pleasure. In the midst of praise and blame and gain and loss and fame and disrepute. And in the last few minutes extending compassion outward in all directions. All of the suffering beings in this planet. East and west, north and south. Include yourself in this all. All living beings, including us everyone in this room, in this sangha. The rich and poor, the old and young, those near and very far away. True compassion includes both the oppressed, And the oppressors, those who are so confused, so ignorant that they're causing harm to others. May all beings find the willingness to do what needs to be done. To learn to respond to the pain they experience with compassion. With wisdom. As we uncover our own wise heart, learning to respond appropriately to the pain on this planet, to the confusion in this world. Each moment of mindfulness, of softening, each positive. Intention of trying to be kind and compassionate, forgiving. Getting us a little bit closer. The heartfelt wish. May all living beings be free from suffering. May we always remember that our own happiness or unhappiness does not have to Be dependent on what's happening in the world or in our own lives, but truly on how we're responding to what's happening out there and in here. We spend the rest of the time um, discussing if there's any questions, comments. I know this is a huge topic, you know, the whole big picture of existence in this world and uh, how to utilize these Buddhist practices and principles to navigate. Um, I threw into the meditation the uh eight vicissitudes that the buddha taught uh and sometimes think about it as like learning to surf the waves um and i feel like you know being by the beach and the waves of that The you know the waves just keep coming like you you know you can't stop uh the tides you can't stop the waves and um and I, I, I really appreciate actually that Buddha that the Buddha uh, framed awakening uh, as continuing to uh, have both pleasure and pain. And there, I think a lot of us have this idea and this sort of hope and this delusion that, like, well, if I could just get rid of all my pain, then I'd be happy. <laughs> if I could, if, if I could get so enlightened that it was just pleasant all of the time, and I, even serenity sort of sounds like it's pleasant, right? May I, have, may I be serene? Like that sounds pleasant, sounds like a peaceful place, or but peaceful or, or serene or equanimous from this Buddhist perspective is in our relationship to pain as well as pleasure, is in our relationship to praise as well as blame and criticism and conflict, that there's no existence possible even if you're a enlightened guru, you know, like, even if you become the Buddha of our age, people are going to give you a lot of shit about it. <laughs> right? You know, you're going to get criticized. You're going to get. Uh... I just really appreciate that the, the Buddhism sets up this reality-based approach to spirituality, to human psychology to uh living in the world not this sort of we'll get so enlightened and then everything will just be bliss all of the time and the Buddha's saying like yeah you can get enlightened and then you'll have a wise relationship to the pain in your life the pain in this world the criticism the loss the sickness aging and death you won't suffer about it anymore but it the world the the difficulties will con- the beatings will continue for sure, but you don't have to suffer about them. Is the message? Is the teaching? Is the path that we're on? So, anyways, I I could go on and on. But questions, comments, clarifications about anything I'm saying. Tibby, go ahead, unmute yourself.
1: Hey, thanks, Noah. It's actually I really wanted to talk about this tonight, and so I'm really grateful that you brought this in. And I keep going back and forth, so I'm going to try and ask this simply, which is always hard for me, okay? But the beautiful thing about meditating and working with you and studying more is I find myself much more at this state of equilibrium and seeing that certain emotions, number one, they're not following the path. In virtue, I'm just at peace. I have equanimity, right? At the same time, some of those emotions, anger, jealousy, envy, they've actually driven me to do really positive things in my life. Not against other people, but they've driven me to do really positive things. So when I look at what happened at Lincoln and Venice, right, to a young man on my street with my tax paying money, I want to act Like It's like, I'm so torn. The other night I said to a group of us, I'm like, Oh, I'm so happy because I realize I don't need the anger to deal with this. But then yesterday I'm thinking, but the anger drives me to act, you know? So can you talk about, it's hard to do right effort. That's when it, where I'm at. Like it's so much easier to driven with that. Those Anyway, can you talk a little about right effort and
0: working that way? Thank you
1: welcome.
0: I mean, the piece that I picked up on, could you hear it pretty well? Yeah. The piece that I picked up on that I want to reflect on, some of it's about effort, uh, but this part that you're talking around uh, anger as the motivation for action, for um, pretty, people relate to that? Like, yeah, like we get pissed off and we're like, I'm going to do something. Part of, I part of how I try to relate to it and I can relate because I've spent a lot of my life pissed off and trying to <laughs> create a change based on that anger at injustice and part of what Buddhism teaches us to do is to look at what's underneath the anger, the hurt, right we we get anger angry when we're hurt. It's a reaction to pain. hundred percent of the time. You ever angry about something that didn't hurt, right? We get angry because it hurts. Something annoys us, hurts us in some way or another. And anger is the response, natural response. It's the aversive response to something painful. Um, And what Buddhism is asking us to investigate, not that you can just make this decision, but what if we try to meet that hurt with compassion rather than anger? And I know for myself, I've, was afraid when I started meditating that actually if I become too compassionate, will I become too complacent? Do I need to hold on to my anger to be uh effective? Do you have that thought? I don't know if this is part of what you're asking, Tibby, but I, I struggled with that a lot of like, oh, will I just be like a like fucking boring spiritual? Um, my sense and my, my direct experience and my sense is that actually compassion acting from compassion doesn't have to be um, soft or complacent or like for those of you in the room, and uh, Tibby, you know, I've, you've been here plenty. Um, these, these paintings of the skulls, these these wrathful. They're in in Tibetan Buddhism. They're called wrathful deities. Both of these that are next to me. Those of you at home have seen them some. You, know, you don't get to see them all the time, but they're like scary looking things, right? Fucking, they look pissed, right? Fucking angry. But what they're uh, symbolizing in the Northern school, the Tibetan school of Buddhism is compassion and it's fierce compassion and this understanding that actually you don't have to be angry. And you know what these images are is they're these kind of these deities, these demons of, of fierce compassion and that they're like the skulls. And, you know, sometimes there's like dead bodies and dripping in blood and all this cool like, super metal shit, but the symbolism is we are, uh, you know, meeting ignorance with this fierce uh, response, fiercely compassionate, killing ignorance, just meditate and destroy ignorance with compassionate, uh, when it becomes violent imagery, it is a little confusing of like, wait, is there really a compassionate murder Bigger question, <laughs> but it's what the art symbolizes, which is this fiercely compassionate, not angry, out of love, out of compassion, out of mercy and empathy, getting loud, fucking showing your teeth. And that it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be angry to do that. It can actually come from a place of maybe, you know, sometimes the example that's used is like um, a parent protecting a child. Like uh, there's those things of like, you know, the uh, parents, like, uh, like being able to lift a car off of a child of like, like, and it's not out of anger. It's out of maybe it's fear, but it's also just love and compassion and the strength that can come from that loving connection. And so part of what Buddhism is saying is like, what if we have that kind of love, that kind of compassion for all living beings, you'll be super engaged. Compassion's not going to make you complacent or, you know, it's gonna actually help you to be more effective. You know, the Buddha came to his own awakening enlightenment, and then he spent 40 years uh, out of compassion, not only teaching meditation, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, but regularly confronting the kings and the warlords that were murdering each other, regularly speaking out against the caste system, uh, the, the sexist system in in the in Indian culture, he was a, a, a political activist as much as a spiritual teacher. And it's just such a good example for us that it's not just sometimes we see the statues of the guy meditating. We're like, okay, it's all about just sitting still and being peaceful. The outcome of sitting still and developing this wisdom is an engagement with the oppression and ignorance in the world. But it's a balanced, you know, it's that serenity prayer kind of engagement accepting the things we can't change, but the courage to try to change the things that we can have some influence over and speaking out, communicating, educating, inspiring, supporting a positive change as much as we can. And that last part of Tibby's question was effort, like how much effort and how, and um, this is very personal. There, it, I, my own, a lot of effort. <laughs> The answer is a lot of effort. The the image that the Buddha used that I named our meditation community after against the stream, the stream of greed and hatred and delusion is prevalent, is so strong. And if we're complacent, we'll float downstream with the ignorance. Compassion is not something that a decision we can make. It's a huge undertaking to truly learn, to respond in this counter instinctual way. Our instincts say, get angry and suffer about the suffering in this world. To have compassion for the suffering in this world is a very different choice. And it's not something that we can just mentally say, like, oh, I'm gonna have compassion. Like how long ago did you make that decision? I'm gonna be compassionate from now on. And then it lasted for like two minutes. (laughs) And you got in traffic and you weren't compassionate. (laughs) You got home and you weren't compassionate. I love to tell the story of myself where a long time ago, 20 years ago now, I was in India at the Dalai Lama. And I was doing the Bodhisattva. I was doing this, I think it was five or seven day um, Bodhisattva vow, where it's like you do these Tibetan empowerment teachings. And you're taking a vow to save all beings from suffering. And it's this like deep... Thing. And right afterwards, and I was with a couple friends, and right afterwards, we went to this guest house, and they wouldn't let one of my friends in the guest house because he had dreadlocks. And they're like, no, bad sadhu, he can't come in. <laughs> and I picked up a stick. I had just taken the fucking Bodhisattva bath, and I was like, I'll bash your fucking head in if you don't let us in. But just like, I had all of these great intentions to be compassionate. And then I was just like, so quick to violence still. So quick to like, wait, you're not going to, you're oppressing us? How dare you? I will fight you. (laughs) I'll fucking fight you right now. So that decision to be compassionate and then the actual ability to be compassionate and patient and tolerant and equanimous, two different, very different things. Long-term, I haven't threatened anybody with violence in a long time, but it took me a long time to get there took me decades of meditation before I wasn't so reactive where I would hope that now I could be in that situation and be like, okay, (laughs) but I wasn't there 20 years ago, even though I'd been already meditating for years and doing retreats and I wanted to be compassionate, but I still would, was like, you know, this is a situation that calls for violence. (laughs) I didn't actually hit him, but I wanted to. Question here, please. we are just
1: going to ask if they let you go.
0: Yeah. It worked.
1: <laughs>
0: As I recall, they did. This was like, you know, showing up to Delhi at two o'clock in the morning and we had bookings, but they were just like, no, like, go away. And, you know, one of the guys had like long dreadlocks and they were like, he can't come. You too can come in, but he can't come in. And um, they, and we ended up after like a big conflict, them letting him come in. Yes. somebody else online asked the same question. Eric, mm-hmm. please. Um,
1: you talk about attachment and non-attachment. And so I was wondering if Buddhism or the Buddha believes that attachment is part of the human makeup or is it conditioned into us? Like when we come out as babies, we need our parents with this, you know. And we attach to that, and so I think about the young Buddha in the Buddhist community. If it's not a part of the makeup, when he's made to meditate and learn these ways as a young child, as he grow up with non-attachment, with some sort
0: of attachment disorder. <laughs> <laughs> My sense is the that the teaching is um, the understanding is that it's. Um, If you take birth into a human body, you will have a survival instinct that is craving for pleasure and connection, and that it's innate in us, and that it's only through a meditative transformation that we can learn to live with the truth of impermanence, where we learn the difference between attachment and connection. Connection is necessary. We use this term attachment and as like a healthy attachment for parent and child or whatever. Um, but it's actually a uh, connection is is important, necessary, a healthy connection. We don't have to cling. Now, it's inevitable that as children we cling and as adults we continue to cling, but it's possible to get to a place where we have a a connection with each other. And I use my hands to to touch, to embrace, to stay, be be present with and not cling and try to control, right? Because clinging is trying to stop someone from being impermanent. (laughs) It's not letting them have their own thoughts and feelings and moods and, you know, like, you should be the way I want you to be. Uh, I'm attached to you showing up in a good mood all of the time, (laughs) you know. So I think it's innate, but the, the meditative process helps us. And I don't know how young I'm aware of one place in the suttas, where it says something about seven-year-olds, like not for the first seven years, let people sort of develop, but that by seven years old, that you can start to learn mindfulness. And you can start to do that process of disengaging and individuating, developing wisdom. But I don't think you want to do it to a (laughs) three-year-old. But, and even seven seems pretty young. But I don't know what age, like in... Buddhist countries, they let kids come into the monastery, but there is some minimum age. And I don't know if maybe it might be seven as the age that you can go and be a monk. I mean, the Dalai Lama, you know, that Tibetan Lama lineage thing, they'll actually take infants from their family and say, This is the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. And we're going to take this infant and we're going to raise them as the prince and as the Lama and, you know, raised by Lamas and, you know, and I don't know, this current Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, seems to be a pretty happy, well-adjusted, compassionate, wise being. Didn't seem to fuck him up too much. But certainly our Western psychology would be like, whoa, that would be really traumatic to take a child from his child, you know, from their, you know, primary parents and raise them by a bunch of fucking monks. Turn them into a sociopath. You know, but. It seems to be they have a system in that in that system to to do it. I'm sure that the mother was around some, but pretty much raised by the other monks.
1: Thank
0: you. It's almost nine o'clock. We'll leave it there for tonight. I know Russ has a real. We'll let Russ get the last word. Russ Smith, our resident communist. Let's hear about it.
2: That was a big mistake to let me talk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, you know, one of your teachers, teachers or inspiration for your teachers is espousing uh, dharmic socialism. And I think he uses the word socialism because it's, uh, you know, more acceptable than communism, but, you know, actually communism, uh, means no state at all, you know, like it's actually a utopia. And that's why I mentioned Jesus and the Buddha, because they both seem to practice communism. So my question is can we, uh, you know, I've, I've learned from you to stop worrying about changing the entire world. You know, to stop trying to get everyone to agree to us because it's not going to ever happen. The Buddha said it's never going to happen. But can we espouse, can, espouse, can we espouse uh, a world where there's no violence, where there's no class struggle, where there's no materialism, and uh, where we all live in harmony? under, uh, I had to say it, but I'll just say it, a, a communist ideal, which doesn't involve a state at all. You know, if you even Marx said there will be no state under communism, and that's, I think, why Dal, the Dalai Lama said he's a Marxist. So my question to you, I know, a big one.
0: I don't and, have any answer. But, Thank you. I don't know the answer. Here's a question that I have um, for you, Russ, and we can talk about this another time. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, But, um, you know, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, who you're referring to, who, you know, had some of these ideas about Buddhist socialism. um, I would be curious, you know, in your research of how he, you know, he was the abbot And, you know, he ran a big monastery and he's the boss. He was the oligarch of the monastery and what he said goes. So I'm certain that he didn't have a social uh, equality structure in his community. And he had these ideas about socialism, but um, I'd be curious if you did some research of how did he actually run his community? Because it's one thing to be like, I am the boss. And, you know, and everyone's equal, but I make all of the decisions for this community, <laughs> which I think is sort of what happened in that community. Um, he had, you know, so we can talk about this later, but I'd be curious how that actually played out in their sangha. Um, and, you know, from your involvement in Thich Han, and I think that what Buddhism is saying is we're not going to change the whole uh, society, but we can create societies. We can create communities that have much more wisdom, much less ignorance, fueling our Buddhist communities, you know, that we can come together as a group of people and say, like, let's be a community that's not part of the, you know, capitalist um, confusion that's happening out there, even, you know. And perfect segue to my donation announcement. Even the fact that, I mean, really, even the fact that we run this meditation center for eighteen years now—not quite a, this group for eighteen years, the centers for twelve or something like that—but uh, without charging. In this society where you know you have to pay for everything, that we've been able to run this meditation center for over a decade, just based on generosity. Just donations, totally stepping outside of the cultural norm of fee for service and saying, like, we're here. If you want us to still be here, donate so we can pay the rent on the building. You know, if you want to be part of this, be generous, make a donation. This is supported entirely by the donations of the members of the community. And it's a very um, rare thing to have a totally donation based business especially in Los Angeles, with especially in Venice with the rents and all of that stuff. But I've been able to pull it off for over a decade and having the group. And I've been teaching for over 20 years without ever charging. And I've had so many people come to me, so many good capitalists come to me and be like, <laughs> dude, you're an idiot. You really need to monetize this thing. You know, you got all these people coming. You could be charging everybody. You could be making tons of money. And it's just like, that's not what we're doing here. We're doing something that is not about monetizing and it's about spreading the Dharma. It's about spreading compassion. And your generosity is necessary to continue that. And the people before you supported it and then you support it for the people after you. And so anyways, that's my pitch for making some donations to support against the stream. And I will end, and I know we're over, but I will end with saying, like, all of these perspectives are offered for your contemplation. You get to reflect on my perspectives, the Buddhist perspectives, and find out for yourself what's true, what's useful, and find your own way with all of it. Don't don't believe me, but reflect on it. Find your own way with, with all of these things. And we'll leave it there for tonight with any merit being offered outward in all directions to all living beings. May each one of us awaken and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you. Sorry for going over a little bit. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against a Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.